What a customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food and Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hope you're hungry. Let's dig in. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Have you noticed the slow but sure trend of self-service kiosks in your life? Think about it for a moment. They've existed at the self-checkout line in the grocery store or at the gas pump. I know we've all seen them. But now they're becoming an industry standard for checking in at hotels, ordering food at restaurants, and more. What prompted this kiosk takeover? What technology on the back end is empowering them to ease not only the customer experience, but the businesses too? And what does it mean for the future of retail, hospitality, and food and beverage? Today, we're joined by Healy Cipher, CEO of Zivello, a company which provides high-end self-service solutions, from the aesthetics of the outer shell to the software powering the whole operation. Cipher says a kiosk is more than a novelty. It can reframe how a restaurant, per se, markets its items and utilizes manpower. Industry giants like McDonald's are catching on to the trend. According to Business Insider, most of the company's 14,000 locations in the U.S. will have kiosks in place by 2020. Cypher breaks down all the ways the self-service kiosk is changing the food and beverage industry, from a more engaged customer experience to increased revenue. But with potential come challenges as well, like outdated POS systems and fear of labor loss. But if done right, self-service kiosks don't have to replace anyone. Instead, they can make jobs more rewarding. All right, Healy, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Happy whatever day it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows? Honestly, at this point, they all start to blend together. Am I right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But, hey, you know, it's really exciting to get you on the podcast to chat about Zavello and really, more importantly, to chat about the self-service kiosk and how it's affected the food and beverage industry and then how it's entering other markets. Because, you know, I think we're all used to seeing it at the airport, but we're not all used to seeing it at our McDonald's. Uh, I know when I was studying abroad in Barcelona, I was ordering at just a random McDonald's there, and I was surprised that no one was going up to the to the counter to order. They were all using the self-service kiosks, and it was a totally new thing for me. I didn't even know this was, you know, a, a, an aspect that McDonald's had to offer, but it's that kind of technology that is starting to become more ubiquitous, and pretty soon, I think we're going to see this in a bunch of different places. Completely agree. I think, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to say, but I do believe we're going to see more change, Daniel, in the next five years than we've seen in the last 20. And you know, being on the front lines, being you know, lucky enough to have some incredible brands walking through our hallways you know, on a weekly basis, the way they're thinking about things is fundamentally changing. The questions they're asking is just a very different view on the world. And I think you know, we're all seeing the same things. We're seeing the same meta trends in the industry. We're seeing consumer demands outpacing the ability of a lot of brick and mortar to keep up. We're seeing the cost of labor going a very specific direction, which puts an increased burden on productivity per staff. And we're seeing these digital first brands are, are getting a leg up over some of the larger, more entrenched uh, strategic brands out there. And so, you know, what is the playbook? How do, how do brands become successful? 
in this new and ever-changing landscape. And that's something we think about every day. So we're excited to get into this. Yeah, absolutely. So before we jump into the main topic, um, kind of want to recap a little bit of who you are. So before you were the CEO of Zavello, you were the CEO and founder of Oak Labs, which makes me think of Pokemon. Not sure if you were a Pokemon guy growing up, but <laughs> just thinking of Professor Oak's Pokemon Lab. If that you was you, I mean, hey. Mascot. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe able to do a quick, quick background. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, jump into your time as chief of staff at CTO at eBay. And then, you know, also you were named uh, by Goldman Sachs as one of the top 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs. So I just got to know, other than your amazing name, you know, what makes you an intriguing entrepreneur? So intriguing. How would you say <laughs> how how would you say that you as an entrepreneur and a business owner and a thought leader really tries to, you know, put their personal spin on everything? Well, <laughs> thanks. I can't claim that I'm intriguing. And actually, if you ask my wife, I'm pretty sure she'd claim that I'm very unintriguing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so quick, quick background is I was I was approached, I was a TA at undergrad and, and you know, fears out of college, working as a consultant in New York. And one of my students, who I was a TA for, called me up and said, you know, I've started a startup in Palo Alto. I'd love for you to join and become my uh, VP of business development. And I said, that sounds great, a guy named Jack. So I, I came out, joined the company. We were, it was called Milo.com, a local product search engine. So, you know, essentially, if you wanted to find a product, we told you the stores around you that had it on the shelf, what the price was and what the inventory count was. And believe it or not, within seven months, we had successfully sold to eBay. Uh, you know, $75 million acquisition. There's about 21 of us. And over the course of this whirlwind of due diligence, I got to know uh, the technical staff at eBay pretty well. One of whom was a guy named Mark Hartis, the CTO, another, another amazing guy, Dan Glasgow, who was the SVP of product uh, management for the company. And so they asked me to become their chief of staff. I was kind of playing a, a dual role uh, when I joined eBay. And what was interesting was this was at the time when eBay was this massive amalgam of e-com players. So it was eBay.com, it was PayPal, it was GSI, Magento, and it was a suite of e-commerce. And so what we were doing, and I, and I was often kind of you know helping out with these big presentations for the whole company, was bringing in retailers and uh, pitching them e-commerce solutions. And they'd all say the same thing, Daniel. They'd come in from all over the world, they'd pitch them for hours and sometimes days at a time. And they'd say, hey, this is great. Now, what technology do you have for my physical stores? Which, by the way, are still 90 plus percent of revenue. <laughs> and we just didn't have a lot, which is, by the way, still, still the truth. I think uh, brick and mortar commerce is still 91 percent of revenue. Right. Which is which is so funny because that's just definitely not the narrative that loves to be pushed. You know, that e-commerce is taking over and that brick and mortar, you know, you really have to create that in-store experience to draw people to the store. But like you said, I mean, if it's still the majority, then people are still doing something right or still finding ways to make brick and mortar beat out the convenience aspect of heading to Amazon or heading to the online site. Look, I'll take it even further. I think e-commerce is a sewer where brands are forced to sell their stuff. Wow. Bold statement. It is awful. It is absolutely awful. Um, you know, if, if you're a best in breed soft goods, you know, fashion apparel retailer selling online, then you're only getting 35% returns. I mean, how are you supposed to manage a business when one out of three things are in the sky being sent back to the DC for refurb and for restock, and then you got to try to resell it? I mean, good luck. And it's got to be free shipping. It's just, 
it's just insane. You know, plus first thing you see online is price. You don't fall in love with the items. There's, there's a zillion ways that you can get into it. Um, it's, it's a brilliant play by some players, but all to say that this was actually kind of the sentiment of some retailers as well. And so what we did is uh, I convinced the executive team to let me start a new division of the company called the Retail Innovation Team. And it was all about bringing the best of online thinking into the physical world. And so what we started doing was, you know, through these, these really interesting projects with companies like Nordstrom and Kate Spade and Rebecca Minkoff and Sony and Tom's and, you know, you name it, Toys R Us, um, building out these experiences that were digitizing in-store fleets. And it was an array of experiences. It was, you know, a 24-7 window shop for Kate Spade Saturday. So the entire island of Manhattan was their first store. It was end caps for Toys R Us or gift guides for people walking into the store and figuring out, you know, what they were going to buy for their, their kids. It was these, uh, you know, huge experiences um, like what we built in Rebecca Minkoff, where the entire store was full of mirrored surfaces that would come alive and show you a fashion, a fashion show and the products that, that were within the fashion runway show, but now actually being sold in the store or fitting rooms that would come alive. And as we were building all these experiences, Daniel, what happened is we realized it was just really, really hard to build them. And this is why a lot of retail wasn't actually advancing. It was too complicated. And so we left to start a company called Oak Labs. And uh, we started out with some kind of product aspirations to, to begin. But what we ended up ultimately focusing in on was becoming the first purpose-built operating system for in-store digital experiences, for basically kind of touch experiences, and, um, you know, after two and a half years in the, in the last year, 2017, we had you know, really fun revenue growth. I think it was 347% or something insane. Um, we ended up getting a handful of acquisition offers, one of which was this amazing company, Zyvelo, who makes, who has an equally powerful hardware platform, these beautiful um, public computing experiences that were in, you know, big QSR brands, big retail locations, airports, entertainment, sports venues, you name it. And our vision is to create the first app store for public computing. So what this means is um, when you walk into stores of the future, the stores should just kind of come alive around you, not require that you have an app, not require necessarily that you're checking in or logging in, but instead becoming your version of the, of the store. And so what we've done as a company is focused in on being that turnkey solution for a lot of the biggest brands out there. Um, and, you know, uh, happy to say it's been an incredible journey and I've, I've never seen an industry growing quite this fast or this much opportunity in my life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see why it's so attractive, especially when there is such a push to bring emerging technology and finding ways to make the brick and mortar experience special. You know, how do we keep it special? How do we keep people engaged? And I think you said it best yourself that all the methods you were trying were just too too complicated. You know, it was like trying to change too much all at once. Better to start with something simpler that can revolutionize the experience the same way or can have the same level of impact but isn't so, you know, comprehensively destructive to the environment of, you know, of the retail experience or, or doesn't totally have to change up everything you you think about, okay, how is this dressing room going to work? What technology is going to make this have a VR experience? It's like, okay, no, too much, too much. Let's think simpler and how can simple be just as effective? Yeah, and that, that, that's true, I think, just across the board on so many levels. And I, I'll remember the... Um one of the first days of Airbnb when there was a six of them in, uh, in the apartment on, oh gosh, I forget the street in San Francisco. I, I was hanging out with them and, and on, on their walls, they had this really beautiful thing written down. It said simplify and it was crossed out. 
and it said simplify, and it was crossed out. And then it said simplify. And there's something so beautiful about that. And I think that's actually something that, you know, everyone's looking for, whether it's consumers walking into a store, just looking to get what they want or easily be inspired, whether it's, you know, the purchasing company on the customer side who just wants a solution that is beautiful and works well and, and makes your stores up to date. The whole industry is always is always yearning for very simple, powerful, impactful turnkey solutions. Um, and it's definitely been a mantra of ours as a company to make it really easy for our partners to be effective. Right. And well, now we're seeing these self-serving kiosks enter so many more markets. So now let's dive into the main point of the conversation here, which is really seeing how these self-serving kiosks have entered their respective markets. Um, I think we mentioned it at the beginning here, but we're pretty used to seeing them at the airport, checking in your luggage. We're pretty used to seeing them at, I mean, like a gas station, even if it is pretty rudimentary, still there. Um, even at grocery stores, right? We've got your self-service checkouts. But what about at these fast food restaurants or even just establishments um, where you walk up to the kiosk, you order your food, and then you just go pick it up at the attendant at the desk rather than having to sit and order and speak to an actual person. How have you seen these kiosks enter the food and beverage industry and what kind of impact have they already had on the market? Yeah, well, it's a bit of an evolution, actually. So I'll, I'll start with maybe a story about public computing because I think it's more common than we realize. And then I'll talk about how, how clients tend to adopt it. So never forget, I, I was sitting down with the founder of, of Zybello, a guy named Zyber, really intelligent, great guy. And we were getting breakfast in Berkeley on a Saturday morning. And he goes, Healy, kiosks are sexy. And this was before we merged. And I said, come on, man, I'm sorry, but kiosks are not sexy. Like, I don't, that sounds old school to me, you know? <laughs> you know, and he, he goes, okay, well, let's, let's just talk about the last time that you you went traveling to New York. I said, okay. He goes, so you got in your car and you had to get some gas at the gas station on the way to the airport. I said, yeah, that's right. He goes, okay, so you got out. How'd you fill up your gas? And I was like, well, I went to the gas pump and I, you know, I kind of used a self-service kiosk to, to pump the gas. He goes, right, okay. Then you went to the parking garage at the airport and how did you get the parking ticket as you're pulling in? I said, oh, yeah. And it, was, it was like one of those you know, touchscreen kind of ticket dispensers. He goes, yeah, okay. So then you went into the airport, you know, your car's parked and you had to check in your bag. What'd you do? And I said, yeah, you know, you're right. I walked up to a kiosk and I checked in my bag and I printed the ticket and I handed it over to someone. He goes, okay, let's keep going. So I go through TSA and he goes, well, how'd you order food? I said, you know what? I sat down on the table and there was a touchscreen there on the iPad and I, I ordered my food. He goes, right. And he goes, and after all that, you sat down in the airplane seat and how did you watch the movie that was sitting on the back of the seat in front of you? And I just cut him off and I said, you know what? You were right. Kiosks are sexy. <laughs> we, <laughs> what a revelation moment. Yeah, because well, we don't think about it. We see it all the time. And, and all these places we're used to seeing it. Self-checkout and grocery or gas pumps at the gas station or, you know, um, whatever it is. We you know, Parking tickets or even movie tickets. You don't realize it's become a part of our daily lives. It is an existing use case. And so while we see a tremendous amount of interest you know, kind of in those past verticals, grocery was big, travel saturated. What's coming up is just huge. I mean, ordering food in restaurants is insane. Wayfinding in stadiums, insane. Endless aisle in retail, insane. I could keep going, you know, checking for hotels. And so what generally happens is, you know, these, these industries have their own adoption cycles based on whatever forces they're experiencing. Uh, food really started picking up in the last two years. Uh, and I'd say right now we're reaching the real speed phase where everyone who wants to stay contemporary and keep up with the times 
is starting to invest in their digital infrastructure, um, you know, which kind of means touchscreens in stores. And generally what they do is they try, they dip their toe in and they get a bunch of tablets and they'll put them on sticks around the store, you know, on the tables, whatever it is. And that uh, will be the way of kind of testing experiences out. And generally speaking, six months later, they'll say, you know, that was a huge failure. The software was okay, but man, those are not commercial ready. We couldn't keep them charged. They were falling over. They were breaking. And so then they'll come to, um, to a company like Zavello and say, can you please help us make these beautiful experiences that are feature friendly, you know, that, that have kind of a, a much lower total cost of ownership over, over these years. And, you know, as I'm sure you can see in the press, you know, it, it's official that we are, um, you know, we supply McDonald's or one of our biggest partners. We've shipped many, many, many systems to them. I can't disclose the exact numbers, I don't think. And, you know, there are these beautiful, large screen, multi-sided uh, self-ordering kiosks that have tremendous results. I mean, we're talking, you know, the payback is in months, uh, sometimes even weeks, depending on the store location. And they're doing big overhauls of the stores. Uh, that is happening because the basket size is, is being increased by 20 to 30 percent. So, you know, customers walk up to these experiences and they realize they're now shopping. They're kind of exploring the menu. They're learning about things. They're maybe going to try something they wouldn't normally try if they felt pressured by a long line of people waiting for them to get through, get through. And they'll try out, you know, the, the Southwest chicken barbecue burger or the, you know, the, the blizzard that's Christmas special or whatever it is when maybe they wouldn't. And what's also happening, and this is what's very interesting, is it's changing the um, economics of the store where now they're actually making much more money per staff count. And so what they're not doing is getting rid of people. What they are doing is allocating it. So you have more people in the kitchen to just keep up with all the orders that are coming through during these peak times. And it's so interesting when you start to think about these like obvious facts. You know, It's like, why would I walk up to a counter and tell someone what I want so they can enter it into a computer when I can just enter it into the computer. <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't get it. Like no one wants to do that job. So anyway, huge, huge growth. We're seeing, you know, of the top five QSRs, we're in top three working with them. Um, we're seeing it in fast casual increasingly. Uh, we're seeing it in stadiums. You, you name it, where people previously had to wait in line or feel pressured or just waste time. They're just not willing to do that anymore. You know, I think one of the questions everyone asks is, well, why don't you just do this on your mobile phone? And the answer is, and this is what I find to be so interesting, is even the best household brands out there, they say, look, the reality is no one downloads our app. Like, we're just okay with it. It's so it's so true. I mean, the, the apps honestly are almost just more annoying than just going up and ordering it in person and I, I and honestly not really once you download it and you get used to using it but I think there's just that barrier of okay now I have to switch my whole methodology of how I order I have to download this app and I I don't go up and talk to someone and it's just kind of like uh, I'm, I'm comfortable ordering how I order I think that's how you know the average consumer would think of the app and you know it, it kind of goes against what you would normally think an app would do for your company, which is, oh, no, it's going to be so convenient. People are going to be able to just order before they get into the store. But I, I guess, you know, I guess you're seeing that that's not the case. Yeah. The average consumer is downloading, and this is a real stat. Uh, actually, guess how many new applications, mobile apps, the average consumer is downloading a month? Ooh, I bet it's staggeringly low. Zero. <laughs> That's the answer. That that's about as low as I could imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's not going to do it, you know. And that's yeah. And you know, when you walk in and you know you're, you're faced with something easy, you can just reach out and touch. All of a sudden, this device in your pocket, you got to pull out, sign in, open the app, well, find the app, then open the app, then figure out how to, 
it's comparatively less convenient. <laughs> and so, you know, it's this, this kind of difference of a heads down experience in your phone, which is a multi-purpose single user device versus a heads up experience where you're still in the store, single purpose, but multi-user device. It's actually a pretty, you know, different different way of designing experience, but uh, consumers absolutely love it. And frankly, they demand it, Daniel. Wow. Well, you know, that kind of brings me to something else, which I think it goes in in contrast to what you hear a lot about making the brick and mortar store accessible or making it exciting, which is keeping that human element, right? Keeping it authentic and making sure that you don't take the humanity out of retail. And so I think a lot of these examples that you've mentioned are very much in industries or in applications that are very much about convenience. You know, when you go to the airport, you just want to be able to get your luggage in there, boom. When you go to the fast food restaurant, pretty easy to just go up to the kiosk, order what you want. It's faster. It's more convenient. And like you said, you get more of an opportunity to explore new items. But what about in applications where the humanity or just the aspect of interacting with another human is really essential to the experience? Are you seeing any retailers or any markets in general that are implementing technology like this where they, you know, it's actually supplemental to that one-on-one human interaction? Absolutely. And that's believe it or not, a key ingredient to making it successful in the first place. People don't want to walk into stores where there's you know, no one else there, where there's interacting with robots and lockers and lights and bells and whistles or whatever it is, you know. People actually don't seek out those experiences. And so um, you know, what we're finding is the most successful QSR brands that introduce things like self-ordering have greeters now. And it's a different, it's actually an uplifted human experience. Instead of something like, what's your order? Please hurry up, sir. Just saying, hey, how are you? Can you believe the weather outside? It's amazing. They take a knee and they say, say hello to your cute little daughter who's just walked in. You know, like that's now they're able to have this beautiful human interaction that is inherently social and guide them. Hey, if you need any help towards ordering for yourself, let me know. I'm happy to do it with you or for you. But if you just want to do it on your own, that's great. And what it's giving is it's giving every consumer convenience. It's giving them choice. And it's also making it still social. And so... It's such a good question because I don't think the aim is to remove humans at all. It's just to change it. It's to bifurcate the kind of highly repetitive, high-volume, boring stuff that most humans are relegated to do in some of these lower-paying jobs and letting them now be you know, more interactive, be more human and spending time with the customers coming in. And you know, frankly, that's the reason that so many boutiques do so well is because you come in and it feels human, you know, and that's – um, I think in an increasingly digital world where so many relationships are, you know, going back and forth as, as, as bits, and, you know, ones and zeros, uh, human connections interaction is actually something people are wanting even more than ever. Yeah. Well, I think it's just representative of how automation and how these kind of processes where you can either utilize data or you can utilize technology to get humans away from a certain process, I think authentically, you know, people will see that and think, ah, scary, they're taking our jobs. But realistically, it's like, no, we're actually empowering you to have a better job or empowering you to to focus your efforts in a more fruitful way, you know, instead of being the person that's just like, well, how can I take your order? What would you like to eat? Okay, that'll be 1050. You're now the person that's actually giving them an authentic human experience, which is uh, which is exciting. I mean, I, I think that should be exciting for business owners. I think that should be exciting for employees, and more importantly, more uh, exciting for the consumers themselves. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, 
I think a major challenge with implementing these has to be maybe some smaller retailers or smaller restaurants that have really outdated point of sale systems. Um, I know that oftentimes it's just, it's kind of the same mentality of the application, right? You sort of get used to doing it one way and then even though you are enticed by the beautiful new kiosk and how that's going to revolutionize your system, it's kind of difficult to readjust. So how are you seeing things like old legacy systems, old POS systems, really, I guess, being a wall for this becoming completely ubiquitous? And then how are you and your company and other companies like yours helping kind of break that wall down? You know, one is the meta trend result of this is is a dichotomy of what brands are able to do. Because you have some that are on these legacy systems that are just so, so old school, like SOAP APIs and just, you know, insane architecture where they go, you know what, we're not going to be able to actually do anything real and meaningful. So we're just going to do some nice, light cosmetic stuff that makes us feel better. And it's tough because it's really hard for them to see real results when they make investments like that. But it's a quick win. You have the other side. And and, and by the way, they're being held hostage by these very old school, uh, you know, kind of foundational pieces of tech. You know, they, they feel like they're in prison. It's an awful thing. The other is you have these companies that have been investing in new systems at the back end for a while going towards these cloud-based point-of-sale systems. You know, one of the most amazing ones out there is a company called Teamwork Retail. I was sort of retail pro back in the, the day, and it was um, – Michael, the founder, was the first guy to convince people that cash traps would be on computers pretty soon, not just on these registers. And he's now moving towards, you know, tablets versus computers. So um, they have these incredible point-of-sales, which when you're on them, then you can do anything fast. I mean, it is cloud-based it's, it's super modern it's just fantastic so that's what's happening though you have either those who have invested a lot a while ago who are now able to do these things or cosmetics changes now what we've done as a company to make this easier for our partners is we have uh kind of an app store model where when a partner comes to us we get a sense of okay what point of sale are you on what are your network configure strict constraints what are the things you need to know about you know physical constraints and then we actually do solution engineering to get them the right. So really beautiful middleware options that can talk to a lot of different point of sales that are old school. We come pre-integrated with some of them. And we try to always bring them a solution that will come get them to market faster in a scalable way. It's not always perfect you know, to start, but um, the, the biggest challenge I've seen is actually, yes, if it's old school, it's tough, but it's a fragmentation. We have some brands that actually have fragmentation across all over actual franchisees. So, you know, there's one company, I can't say who it is, but uh, they have 650 stores and they have seven separate point of sales. Wow. Like, <laughs> that's a yeah. pain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, this is representative of what I've seen in a lot of industries, which is that one piece of technology alone typically isn't good enough. It's, it's when you employ multiple kinds of tech, a lot of open source technology that can work with each other that you really start seeing those returns and you really start seeing the best bang for your buck. Yeah. All right. Well, Healy, it's been great having you on the podcast. We're going to go ahead and wrap up. I know you've got some things to get to. You are a busy man. I mean, Goldman Sachs did say you are an intriguing entrepreneur, so <laughs> you must have intriguing things to get back to. But got fin- to finish off with just sort of looking to the future a bit for these kiosks and this really authentic and exciting new experience for retailers, for 
food and beverage, I guess now looking forward at other markets, where do you see this self-serving kiosk experience expanding to first? Do you think it's going to make its way into health? Um, uh, maybe into, you already said sports and entertainment, but maybe even more in depth into those markets. Give me sort of your prediction and why, and then uh, and then we'll be all good. Yeah, well, for sure, for sure. Well, first of all, Daniel, so much fun. Thanks for having me. And the second is, I think that, uh, you know, and this is a very broad prediction, so it's easy to not be wrong. I think the retail specifically is going to be changing tremendously. You know, uh, healthcare, hospitality, financial services, they're all very exciting opportunities. Frankly, they do pale compared to the size of retail. I don't know if you knew this. Retail itself employs one out of every four people in the country in the U.S. Um, so it's just huge, huge, huge. And I think you're going to see certain sub-verticals really hitting it hard out of the gates. You know, I think cosmetics is really pushing hard and beauty is making a lot of really interesting advances. We're seeing that. I think we're seeing really interesting uh, innovation in, in home improvement. Some of these multi-brand big boxes are having to provide these kind of speedy experiences and personalization that we're seeing is happening. And I think, too, you know, even in soft goods, you're going to see these kind of new concepts coming out that require a bit of digitization. So retail is a huge market. Um, you know, it's impossible to be wrong when I say it's going to be in retail, which is why it's an easy answer. But I can tell you that we are just being in the seat. And obviously, you know, there's, there's so many partners where we just we don't talk about quite yet until until, you know, uh, the timing is right. We're seeing a tremendous, tremendous amount of activity, especially as the pressure continues for these existing brands who have been out there who have large uh, store footprints to digitize their fleet, and for these you know newcomers, the online first brands, the Bonobos, the Warby Parkers, the Kianas, the Amgemis, who are now opening stores to have a very tech-forward point of view as they think about physical experience. Um, it's, it is a wide, wide open field, Daniel. Well, it's an exciting time to be in that field, and I'm sure you're pumped to see where uh, the future takes you. Well, Healy, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and giving us your insight on this. It's been tremendous. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day, man. Yeah, you too. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.